Whoever you are, wherever you are, and whenever it is, you are catching some brain waves coming to you from the banks of the swift and intoxicating St. Vrain River in almost always sunny Longmont, Colorado. I'm Becky Peters, and across the table from me is the man whose mom has a tattoo that says sun. It's Ben Cobb. Ben, what's good? It's all good, Becky. Feeling an insane amount of gratitude that every other week we get to bring giants and education to the earbuds of my favorite people busy teachers all to help us feel more informed inspired and connected and you would be hard pressed to find a giant bigger in education and particularly in the research field than our guest today he's the author of over a dozen books most recently 10 mind frames for visible learning which we'll talk to him about today tons of articles and npr actually said if there was a research hall of fame the first member would be john hattie so if you want to skip straight ahead to his interview it starts around the 8:20 mark but we want to help you make some brain waves too so hey siri what time is it it's time to get out of our heads and into the classroom. I need help! Somebody, please help me. Help me! Give me something I can use. Let's get out of our heads and into the classroom. That's right, it's out of our heads, into the classroom, the part of the show where we give you actionable advice and tangible tips that you can put into class tomorrow. And today, all of the curated tips that we're going to give are all around your visual cortex. Because did you know, Becky, that 75% of your sensory neurons are all applied to the visual part of your brain? So we're going to give you some cool ways to use your visual cortex in any grade level and context. I did not know that, and I actually fact-checked it, and I found like three more percentages about how tied in your vision is to the different nerves in your brain. It's fascinating. Thank so, you good for fact-checking me. Yeah, I appreciate good job. it. <laughs> Got to. Uh, so my first tip is a combination of a few ideas in Dan Ryder's book, Intention, uh, and a graphic jam activity that I've seen in the business world. It could be done at any point in the learning process. It could be a warm-up, an exit ticket, formative or summative assessment. So what you do, have students take one to two minutes to write words on index cards from your unit of study. And those can be difficult vocab words or ones they're more familiar with. Collect all of them, shuffle them up, and randomly, or at least like pretend to be random, you know, it's the teacher trick, read the word to the class and stick them to a blank wall or a whiteboard, and then have students reflect on that word and draw a visual representation on a sticky note. Give them one or two minutes to do that for each word, and then have them put those sticky, uh, those sticky notes with their pictures under the word, connecting their images with the word, which is also called dual coding because you're putting information into your memory in those two different ways, both with drawings and with text. Then you can have them say a few things about their drawing or just do a gallery walk at the end. When you're doing your quote-unquote random picking of words, uh, you can choose some super easy ones like water cycle, but then think of also things that are harder to draw, like homeostasis. And then even putting more ownership in the students' hands, you can ask them to interpret the class understanding of those concepts based on the visuals that they see. We'll talk a little bit with Dr. Hattie about the power of that in this interview as well, about how students can be assessment-capable learners. But I think this activity is a good example of of making learning visible and can therefore be a valuable assessment both for learning and of learning. Wow, wow Becky. Total brown nose. You're going to yeah. just yeah, that's right. really totally suck up to John Hattie and say visible learning. No shame in it. Now he's going to like you more, and I'm never going to get that invite to explore the Australian outback with him. Nope, it's going to be all me. I'm just kidding. That's an amazing idea. I really like the idea of having students draw out their understanding of a concept. And now with Apple's new emphasis on everyone can create... I can think of a ton of ways that you could digitize that assignment that you could have on Schoology, like a um, photo gallery, um, what are they called, media gallery, where students could do their drawing and submit it there and learn from another one another in that way. So that could be super cool. Hmm. 
Um, since uh, we're early on in the year, my tangible tip I think could be really useful this time of year for students, and we're going to call it Show Me Your Values, kind of like the Tom Cruise. Uh, and this can be done at several different points in the year. It can start at the start of the year, and essentially what you're going to have students do is you're going to have them find pictures that represent values that they have. So this could be really low-tech. You could have a bunch of magazines sitting out, and students could, you tell them to pick five values and find pictures for them. So maybe a student values risk-taking, so they would cut out a picture of a diving board or perhaps a Ford vehicle because Henry Ford showed so much risk-taking um, in how he managed the first Ford plants. Then you could have students put those either on like a poster and hang them up all over your room, or I thought it could be kind of cool to hang those values just on one sheet of paper that could slide into the front of their binder and constantly remind them about what they value about learning in your class. Uh, or again, this could be a digital assignment that they could take a screenshot of and put as their avatar logo for Seesaw or their logo or their profile picture for Schoology, so a ton of different places they could put that. And it could also happen not just at the beginning of the year for what they value, but could also happen after they learn a new skill. So maybe after you learn the skill of persuasive writing, you have them find what are different values that you should have as you persuasively write, or what should you be thinking about as you write in a persuasive manner. And so maybe one of the values they have is citing author or citing text. And so they would have a picture of Wikipedia or J.K. Rowling to remind them to cite the author who they're getting their information from. Or maybe in math, after you learn about simplifying equations, they find a picture of plain peanut butter because it reminds them to simplify both sides of the equation first. So this could, uh, a lot of different iterations and ways that you could use this, but show me your values. I love that. And actually, there's a, I was just re-listening to this interview that we're about to share with you all, but there are some cool applications for, you know, what does it mean to be a learner in this classroom? Like, you could do it for that, too. Oh, That'd totally. be awesome. Like John Hattie brings up in a little bit. Absolutely. Uh, so remember, we talked about this with Glenn Whitman, among others. Individuals having a specific learning style is a myth. We are all visual learners, and bringing in activities that activate 75% of our sensory neurons, or whatever it is, will help us or will help our ideas be stickier for everyone. And it's about how you match it to the content that makes the difference. I've personally been messing around a little bit with sketch noting too, trying to encode concepts into my long-term memory and to attach ideas to others to find new complexities and connections I might not have made. So we'd love to see your sketch notes or your visual learning. If you try any of these ideas or adapt them to what you're doing in class, please share them with our learning community using the hashtag make some brainwaves so becky we're all visual learners but we're all about to become visible learners see what i did there i'm gunning for that australian outback trip <laughs> dr hattie it. yes <laughs> so we couldn't be more impressed or more humbled with a guest we are about to present you with today he's the aforementioned john hattie he is a researcher who has done the largest meta-analysis ever of what really increases student achievement. And so he's studied 500,000 different studies with 150 million different student data points. So absolutely insane data size in that way. And in this episode, we discuss what does the research say is the best way to increase student achievement, what is visible learning, and how should teachers give feedback to have the biggest impact. So without further ado, here he is. So, Dr. Hattie, you have been awarded over $30 million in research grants. You've published 350 articles, written 300 conference papers, 12 books, and NPR called you a man who'd go in the Research Hall of Fame. So my question 
is uh, why have you devoted your life to education? Well, I enjoy the fun. I can't believe that I have a situation where I can work with really, really smart students. I've got credible colleagues who are my best critics, the luxury of reading research articles, working with teachers, going out to schools, working with government, being in an academic environment, and I get paid for it. <laughs> it's kind of stunning. It's, it's a blessed life. That's awesome. So I, I want to kind of get into um, some of your research then. So schools, you know, we've often seen that schools have emphasized like the software, the programs in a school or the hardware, like the buildings and the resources, rather than the Intel inside, as you've described them, the core attributes that make schools successful. So what my question is, what are the attributes of schooling that truly make the difference to student learning? Yeah, this is this is the, the biggest dilemma in this whole thing, Becky, is that core notion of inside and Certainly, uh, it, it's not necessarily what teachers do. It's not necessarily who they are. It's how they think. It's those moment-by-moment decisions. It's those decisions they make uh, to change what they're doing to maximise their impact on the learning lives of students. It's their understanding of what their expectations are. It's seeing in kids things that sometimes kids don't see in themselves. It's knowing their, their content not just well, but in terms of their progressions and how kids um, understand and don't understand. It's teaching kids to do things that they don't know what to do. It's giving them the, the sense of joy and thrill and passion to continue to learn. It's in making schools inviting places for them to want to come back in. It's legitimizing error and mistakes and saying it's okay to not know. The reason you're in this room is because you don't know. So let's enjoy that and use that as a starting point. And it's these kinds of ways of thinking that are the essence of the expertise. And what stuns me and what excites me is we actually have a really high proportion of teachers and schools that are doing this now. And what interests me, particularly with my academic hat on, is that every review that ever comes out about teaching starts off by creating a space that says the world's terrible, schools are hopeless, we have a nation at risk, and here's my solution. But we never start as we should. Wow, we've got some stunning stuff out there. How do we scale it up? And that's my fascination. I love that answer. That's that is powerful. Other thing I love in your book and all, all of your work is that you always present solutions to a problem, but you really emphasize the importance of identifying a problem first. And so my question is, uh, what is visible learning, and what problem does visible learning answer? <laughs> oh, I like that question because um, that's the I paraphrase that when people say to me, and particularly in schools, they want to. Uh, do visible learning in their school? And my answer to them is exactly your one, Ben, is well, what problem is visible learning the answer to? And for me, it started, um, like my background as a psychometrician, a measurement person, um, led me in my virtually my whole career down that path, and I thoroughly boy, enjoy being in that measurement community. And visible learning has been a, a side hobby over many years. And it came out of the observation as kind of a bit of an outsider uh, coming into education that everyone I met, whether they be academics, whether they be teachers, whether they be parents, whether they be policymakers, they always knew the truth. They knew what to do. They knew the answer to education. And they all differed. And it just didn't make sense to me that we're in a profession where everything differed. And then I started looking at it, and it became probably the thing that stunned me most from the, the visible learning work is that 95 to 97% of things that we do to kids does enhance their achievement. And so... Everything does work almost. And so, yes, every teacher, policymaker, parent, et cetera, out there can find evidence to justify what they're doing if they set the bar at what works. 
And I wanted to change that bar. And I wanted to say what works best. And so when I looked at that 95 to 97% of positive stuff, then it was like, well, can I, is that, that, in one sense, that legitimizes everything. On the other sense, if you look at that group of schools and teachers who are above the average effect, which is a hang of a lot higher than zero point, there is plenty there. And the visible learning story is have we the courage to reliably identify those schools and teachers that are getting that high effect, form a coalition of success around them, and invite the others in? It can be done. It is being done. It's just not being done enough. And that's the fundamental mission that I'd love to see happen. Then, of course, that then comes down to the next part. What are those things that distinguish those schools and teachers that are getting a higher than an average effect compared to those under? And that's what I spent 20 years of my life trying to understand. So if you could recommend then one change that would make like tons of difference. I mean, I, I've seen, you know, your effect sizes and um, teacher uh, collective efficacy is, you know, among the top. Like what what would you recommend to any school to implement to be able to see that effect size change? Well, well firstly, um, just, just a comment on, you said, you know, teacher collective efficacy is way up near the top. One, one of the, the kind of rods I've uh, created for myself was that league table, that list of all those influences. And in many senses, it worked. It, it, it got attention. And in fact, when I was writing the, the first book, it was, you know, how do I sum it up? You know, the, my first version was 500 to 800 pages. No one was going to read that. And I keep bringing it down. And so I invented those league tables to help bring meaning to it. In some ways, they've now created a world on their own. My message is yeah. the story underlying that league table when it comes to your question. And that's why I've switched the main emphasis to those three words that kind of sum it up. Know thy impact. If you walk into a classroom, if you walk into a staff room, if you walk into a policy meeting and you say, my job here today is to understand my impact, you got it. Now, of course, it begs the moral purpose question. What do you mean by impact? And that's a really critical discussion. And that's where this teacher collective efficacy is powerful because that's where you have those discussions about what you mean by a year's growth, what you mean by expectations, what you mean by progress. And that's a, a mindset. That's a decision making. That doesn't come from a test. That doesn't come from kids' work. That doesn't come from listening to kids. It comes from understanding how teachers interpret those things. And that's what we do a lot of work in our schools, helping schools to create safe environments to hear how teachers make those interpretations. It means who you have impact on. Some you do, some you don't. About what? And that's a really critical part of it. And, of course, the magnitude, the strength of that impact. And that's really the focus of what underlies the top. You're not walking into a classroom to teach kids to get through the curriculum to get them to pass tests. Impact is a lot more broader than that. To get kids to pass tests, you're going to have to engage them. You're going to have to excite them. You're going to have to get them involved in the passion of learning. You're going to have to turn them on. And those are critical parts of the teaching equation. So then is that what professional development looks like in an ideal world, the the discussions that teachers have about what impact yes. is and what impact means and what a year's worth of growth looks like? Is that Does that pretty much dominate what professional development and collaboration time should be about? Absolutely. Like, this is a strong statement, probably too strong, but I couldn't care less how teachers teach. And too much professional learning is about how you teach. It's about sharing resources. It's about understanding curriculum. Oh my gosh, it's about best practice. I don't care how they teach. I care about the impact of their teaching. And that's a dramatically different orientation. 
Wow. Yeah. yeah, that's a huge mind shift. So would you help us understand what that looks like? I mean, I love the idea of moving away from how we teach to really what is the impact of our teaching. Uh, to be fair, but yeah, what does that actually yeah, look fair, like? Man, of course, if you worry about your impact of teaching, of course you're going to worry about teaching, which is why I said it was probably too strong a statement. But what does it look like? Like, um, like I, I, I'm the academic. I sit in the back room. I do the research. I'm not very good in schools. Um, when I go into schools, unfortunately, I talk a lot. And one of the problems is I can do my presentation, I walk out, um, I get my box of chocolates or my glass of wine, and nothing happens. And so I stopped that many years ago. And I built a team around me who's brilliant at schools, and now they're in around you know, 90,000, 100,000 teachers around the world. And I've learned an incredible amount of what that team does. So let me tell you what they do. The, the first thing goes yeah. back to your question. Um, and what you raised before. What is the what is the reason you want this visible learning? So the first thing we do is we do a good old-fashioned needs analysis. Like I have this acronym, teachers are to die for, and the D part of it is diagnosis. The second part is the interventions and implementation, and the third part is evaluating. And so start with diagnosis. So we do this needs analysis, and we get the school, the, the, the school to do it. We don't ask the principal to do it. They're part of it. And we've got about 16 to 20 things we ask them for evidence on. You know, is this a safe place, schooling, what's the concept of a learner? We ask the kids, what's it mean to be a good learner in this class? We ask the teachers. Now, teachers can wax lyrical about what a good learner is. But sometimes kids say things like, a good learner is a kid who comes to school well-prepared, sits up straight, listens to the teacher's questions, and gets the work in on time. None of that's learning. That's compliance. And when you put that up in front of the teachers – they say, oh, my gosh, that's not what I think learning is. Well, there's your diagnosis. Kids' conceptions of learning. It's quite different to yours. You're going to have to fix that if you're going to make a difference to kids' achievement. And we look across those different diagnosis areas. Now, the next phase is kind of the easy phase. Teachers, schools have an incredible number of interventions. In fact, one of my catch cries is beware of educators with solutions. They may not fit the diagnosis. And a lot of professional learning is chosen because we want to do it, not because it relates to something that we need to do in schools. In the same way, teachers look at kids and say, teachers don't, kids don't know this, we have to fix it, we have to remediate it, we have to teach it. Similarly, principals need to say, we're not doing this so well, we need to get better. And that's with the diagnosis. Then the third part of the model we look at is the implementation. And over the years, I've learned that we're not as good as that as we think we are. Too often we implement a policy and because we implemented it, we say it worked. We implement a policy and say because the teachers like it, it worked. And my obsession is do we implement a policy that does change the learning lives of kids? Then the last stage, obviously, particularly you can do the evaluation stage because you've got a pre-measure, and that is the needs assessment up front. And we feed that information back. Now, in that needs, in that evaluation, yes, we do use test scores. Yes, we do use effect sizes. But wow, we triangulate that with the teachers' opinions and views, uh, artifacts of kids' work. We have student, a lot of student voice about their learning in it. And we triangulate them all the time. We're focused on how are the educators interpreting it? How are they making a difference to their expectations? Because here's the dilemma. You want to go and have your kid in a class of a teacher who thinks a year's growth is quite large, or one down the corridor who thinks a year's growth is quite small. Because I can guarantee both of those will be reasonably successful at making small or larger changes. It's how they think. And that's really the essence of what we do in the professional learning. Interesting. So you you bring a team in. You do the needs assessment for the no, school. Like no, you said, they I, are not involved, not involved right? So, so 
Okay. Your team does Why it. Why do we ask the schools to do it? No, we, we want to change the minds the schools mind do frames it? Okay. of the school. You don't go in and do it to them because that intellectual mind frame that you're doing is the very thing you want to develop in them. So you don't do it for them. You get you work with them. So then that leads me into my next question. The 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 kind of balance, I guess, between you know teachers being researchers and action researchers and administrators being analysts of you know what's happening in their schools and, and doing those needs assessments and things like what's the right balance between teachers being statisticians and leading reading all the latest research or you know in order to stay current enough with those things obviously um, or just leaving the research to the academics like you because I did see a hashtag fake news that John and Hattie said leave the research to the researchers yeah I got into trouble for making that comment in England about a year ago and there was a headline in the Times <laughs> Education Supplement that I said teachers shouldn't be researchers. And I did say that, but they missed the second half of yeah. what I said. I said I would rather teachers not be researchers. I would rather them be evaluators. And the point I was trying to make is that hmm. research typically asks the why question. Why is it so? And evaluation asks the so what question. And it's, and of course, Nothing wrong with research. Nothing wrong with teachers doing research. But asking why a kid improved or not, it's a fascinating question. But I want to ask the more important question, did they? And was it a worthwhile improvement? And the skills in the evaluation are quite different to the skills in research. Like research skills are quite tough. And like, as you said, I don't think uh, I'm expecting teachers to be analysts, to be test, do effect sizes all over the place. And like when we work with a school, we always say we want the principal involved, and we want another person who does all that skill stuff. We ask someone who knows how to use Excel. And if we don't find a teacher, we always do find a teacher who does how to do that, a kid will do it. And doing that skill side of it has to be done, needs to be done, but that's not what it's about. It's having that information and then using it to interpret. And so uh, even if teachers understand effect sizes, not a problem. We can deal with that because it's the interpretation of what it means. And we've got ways to do that. So this evaluative mindset, in fact, I'm writing a book with a colleague at the moment on the essence of the profession of a teacher, and our argument it is this evaluative mindset. And of course you need evidence to do that, and there are lots of ways of getting evidence. And one way we do want to legitimize is the teacher's view of the classroom. But here's the problem, guys. One of the things that really is remarkable from Graham Nuttall's research is that about 80% of what happens in a class a teacher doesn't see or hear. So we don't want to legitimize just the 20% that they saw or heard, but we want more than that. And we want other ways to help the teacher see what's happening in their classroom so they can interpret that. So it always comes back to this evaluative mindset. So yes, when I did make that comment, I wish the reporter or the headliner and got the other half right. Well, I, I totally agree with you because I think it's it's too much to be researchers, but I've seen some teachers do, it, like you just said, amazing things with action research and evaluation of what's happening in their classroom. Um, it's, you know, kind of a different, it's just a different side of the same coin, I think. But that's interesting. Thank you for that clarification. I appreciate it. So if we look at some of your factors relating to student achievement, um, we talked about the, the highest one right now is collector of teacher efficacy. Uh, and the next ones are kind of around feedback. So what has your research said about how teachers should be getting feedback and whom they should yeah, be receiving this is it a from? Really one of the more interesting ones because we've known for a long time that feedback has quite a strong effect. But we also know a third of feedback's negative. The same feedback that I give you now, I give to, to Becky, can work. I give it to you, Ben, it doesn't work. And we've spent 10 to 15 years trying to understand that seeming paradox of the strong power of feedback 
And in my early days, oh, wow, did I make lots of mistakes. I remember I regret writing an article once that started off about dollops of feedback. And I was spending a lot of time getting teachers to improve the amount of feedback they gave. And every time I did it, and I went out and observed classrooms, they were already giving lots of feedback. And yes, I could increase the amount of feedback they gave, and it didn't make much difference. And so the light went on a few years ago is that it's not about the amount of feedback that's given. It's about the feedback, how it's received. And like kids, believe it or not, are humans. And like us, they learn very quickly to be selective listeners. I've been married 30-something years. I'm the world's best selective listener. I know I've done it wrong. I'm going to have to do it again. It's going to cost me energy, etc. Sometimes it's just easier not to hear. Like kids, for example, when feedback's given to the whole class, all the kids know it's not about them. And so well, then we started looking about how kids receive feedback. And we did things like give kids the feedback that teachers spend all Sunday writing out. And we waited a day so it wasn't just a memory effect. And then we said to him, what did you understand by the feedback the teacher gave you yesterday? And it was scary. Quite often they couldn't remember. They got it wrong. They misinterpreted it. And we thought, wow, there's the problem. Kids receive seconds of feedback a day, despite what teachers do. And then we went to the next, and you can see this is a long journey. Then we went to the next level and we thought, well, wait a moment, we, we know we're onto the right thing here, looking at how the reception of feedback is what it's about. But then we still had some dilemmas that some kids, what is it they remember what they didn't? And we did this kind of piece of work where we asked teachers what they meant by feedback. And they said things like, it's about giving comments, it's about giving corrections, it's about clarifications, it's about how you're going, it's about where you're going, etc. And then we asked kids the same question. And their answer was dramatically different. They said, feedback helps me know where to go next. And that was the light bulb moment. If there is nowhere to next, kids will argue black and blue in the face, despite sitting in front of them, two pages of teacher comments. They say, no, there's no feedback. They want to know. They want help to know where to go next. Of course, if it's based on corrections and clarifications and how you're going, that makes it even stronger. And let me go one more. We went a step further. And yes, we could increase, and we looked at uh, we, things like we gave re, um, reports back to kids, half of them had where to next and half of them didn't. And yes, sure enough, those with the where to next, there was more action, there was more understanding, there was more meaning, etc. And then we realized that we were missing the obvious. It's the amount of feedback that the teacher receives about where to next is the essence of good teaching. Listening to what kids, where they're going, how they're going, and then making those decisions where to next. So then we spent about 10 years of our life building an assessment scheme that was entirely focused on feeding back to teacher about their impact. And what we're very proud of is that it's a voluntary system. Schools don't have to use it. Um, 80%, 70 to 80% of schools throughout New Zealand are using that tool 17 years later. It does make the difference. Wow. And what we're so wow. – so you can see the journey, and I've got a lot of pressure on me to – publish a book about feedback, and I've resisted until I understand that paradox. And I'm pleased that in um, June or so this, this year, uh, Shirley Clark and I have a book coming out on feedback that sort of gets across these messages. Oh, I can't wait to read it. Yeah, that that's super exciting. The feedback that, is that asking for feedback or is that feedback you see through scores or uh, when you're trying to get feedback from your students, what have you make, seen is the best sure. way to get uh, that? We, we, we actually did another book that came out in January. Um, we went through, like, as a measurement person, the whole notion of formative assessment is an interesting notion. Like, I'm not a great fan of the words formative and summative assessment because 
Michael Scriven, who invented these words 50, 60 years ago, he, he argued that any assess could be formative or summative. I think it was Bob Stake who said, when the cook tastes the soup, it's formative. When the guests taste the soup, it's summative. But we've got this unfortunate belief that there are tests that are formative or summative. It's about that interpretation. And so it comes back uh, very much to it's not the test. It's not the comments. You know, whether kids get more information from tests or comments to me is not the right question. It's the where to next. How can we use that information? And so the argument that we've put forward is that we've tried to change the narrative, the language. And we talk about student assessment capabilities. How do we teach kids to make those interpretations? Why is it that we just stop at the teacher and say the teacher needs to make those things? It is about teaching the kids to do it. And of course, if you're going to teach the kids to be interpretive about those test scores, about those comments, you're going to have to be pretty savvy at doing it yourself. So there's two winners in that game. That's am- it's it. We've actually, um, I was going to talk about your book that came out in January, the 10 mind frames. Um, it, it's fascinating because I, and I think what you, what you said in the preface about it is that it's meant to kind of weave together a narrative behind a lot of those effect sizes that you had those re- that research out for. And there's a, there's a part in that book where you tell, you have a vignette about a teacher who, you know, we've all been there. We spend hours and hours grading papers just to see them in the trash the next day. But what what you said is you come to realize that teachers do not just grade assessments for the learners, perhaps even more important, they do it for themselves. And I think that really speaks to what you were just talking about is that, that mind shift, like where am I going next because of how my students are doing and seeing student achievement as that formative feedback for, for your impact and in your instruction. And I would love for you to talk a little bit more about assessment capable learners. We have a, our, our assessment coordinator in the district is, is in love with that idea. And it's, it's just, we've used it a lot in classrooms to get students students to take more ownership over their own next steps. So can you talk a little bit about uh, a little bit more about assessment capable learners and what that looks like? Sure. And I love what that person is doing in a district. And of course, to do that, you have to get the teachers to understand how to do that. And it goes back to your claim. Like if you think of assessment as helping the teacher, then that actually can change quite a lot about how you construct assessments to know what you've taught well, what you haven't taught well, where do you need to go next, what the magnitude of the learning is. And as opposed to what we typically do is we create a test that to see whether the kids have covered the area. And we think tests are about and for kids. No, I don't think so. If you think that for you, then the kids are the biggest beneficiaries because your judgment's about where you go next. Like I go back to Graham Nutter when he showed 60% plus of what kids is taught in any classroom the kids already know. That's kind of taking scaffolding a bit too far. And so how do we get that notion? So coming back to you know, student assessment, capable students, and we, like I was in a school last week, St. Michael's here in, in, in Melbourne. Their five-year-olds were interpreting their, a, a, a task they've been given, a test they're kind of being given. It was stunning to listen to these kids talking about it, whatever. Sometimes they got it wrong, the teacher and event. Well, have you thought about it this way, et cetera? And this was real teaching of student assessment capable. And it was really fascinating um, in my New Zealand days before I came to Australia. We had a, a bit of a, a dispute at one point about – uh, the data and um, whether schools should send data from one school to the other when a kid shifted them. And the Privacy Commission got in and asked a pretty fundamental question in this business. So let me ask you this question, Becky, Ben. Who owns the data? Oof. That's a really good question. Privacy Commission ruled, and they ruled in a way that was delightful, and they said the kids do. And in schools in New Zealand, uh, kids transfer the data from one school to the other, and it happens. Teachers who say, I'm not going to look at last year's data because it's biased, et cetera. And the kids say, no, 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 miss, I've already done that. Here's the evidence. Whoa. And so that's a detail. Yeah, and it's great. And so 
this notion of giving kids ownership of their data and teaching them how to do it. Like one of my arguments in visible learning, you know, the two core arguments when teachers see learning through the eyes of students, and the other one is when students become their own teachers. We're giving them the very skills that we want ourselves. And that, to me, is what lifelong learning is. That's what self-regulation is. And if five-year-olds can do it, so can eight-year-olds and 15-year-olds. And so this notion of not giving an assessment back, but giving them your comments or whatever and getting them to interpret them, write a commentary on what the teacher has written about what you do next. Now, it's really illuminating for teachers to read that because if the kids don't know what to do next, then your commentary was not very helpful. And so you've got this lovely virtuous circle of that if you want them to understand in light of what they've done, what they do next, what their next goals are and success criteria is, you're going to have to help them do it. And that changes how you write your feedback, how you give it to them. And that's the power notion of student assessment capable learners. Wow. Yeah, if we could, I mean, really, if we could have all of our teachers fostering assessment capable learners in their classrooms, I, I think we would be really far ahead of the game. I mean, just like you said, in New Zealand, how the students own their own data and then come with their own evidence. Uh, I mean, that's what we do as professionals. Um and I think that's the the only way you grow. That's incredible. So in your district, um, I'd hazard a guess, so let me ask you, there's already teachers that are doing this and have been doing this. Yes. And I just want yes. to touch that base because visible learning is, in many cases, all it does is give permission to do what you're doing mm -hmm. yesterday. And one of my frustrations <laughs> in this business, particularly in the, the policy and political space, is everyone starts a conversation by saying how bad things are in there out there, and that's why you need me. I work on the opposite assumption. There's some really good things happening out there. How do we harness that? How do we build that coalition of success around that? And how do we scale that up? And that's kind of what your person's trying to do in your district. And it really is about scaling up that success. And I think that's the best part of this job. There's great success out there. Her name is Kim. I feel bad not mentioning her now. <laughs> I just had a conversation with a teacher today and this teacher was lamenting the size of his class and talking about really how he wished he had a smaller class size. And then I was doing a little research on you and uh, found that you have some interesting thoughts on class size. So could you t tell us about those? That was my pet hate question, Ben. <laughs> how come? <laughs> because I've, I answer this question a thousand times and it, I, I obviously never get it right because when it's then re-reported or there's blogs or things that follow from yours, people say, oh, my gosh, if he'd only come into this class on a Friday afternoon, he'd understand. <laughs> so let me have another go. Look, there has been a lot of research on class size, typically reducing class size 25 to 30 to 15 to 20 is the normal, and it varies. And the effect size on average is around about 0.2, and that means reducing class size enhances achievement. It's a positive effect. The dilemma is why is it so small? And as your colleague has talked to you, it, it seems kind of obvious that if you reduce the class size, you could give more feedback, you could give more individual instruction, you could get more group work going and all those kind of things. And the question is, so why hasn't that been the case? In the many, many cases in the research where that has been looked at, it actually hasn't led to those major increases. And so I've spent quite a bit of time in my career trying to understand why that effect is so low. Now, there's a couple of reasons. The first is, what typically happens when a teacher goes from a class of 25 to 30 to 50 to 20, 
they do the same stuff. They teach the same way. And in classes of 25 to 30, the talent practice model actually works quite well. We tell the kids, they practice. That's not a bad model. In larger classes, we tend to talk a lot, quite a lot, actually. Not as much as me, because I'm the academic. I'm 100%. On average, teachers talk 80 to 90% of the time. Now, when you go, no, no, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's about what they talk about. It's about when they shut up and when the kids talk. Yeah, you, I think I think it's a bit too high, yes, and I think there should be more uh, dialogue. But put that aside. So when we go there, let's go and observe classes of 15 to 20. We implement the talent practice model even more successfully. We talk more. There is less feedback. There is less group work in smaller classes. And that's why the effect is so small. Imagine if we changed how we taught. Then smaller classes might have a higher effect. But I can only find one study in the world where they've changed how teachers teach before they went into smaller classes. We need to do more of that kind of work to understand how we teach differently. But let me raise another issue. One of the arguments that you hear is that, oh, I'd be less stressed in a smaller class. Well, Gene Glass, when he did the very first meta-analysis, looked at that question and couldn't find a difference. Teachers stressed in classes of 30 were the same ones stressed in classes of 15. The PISA study last year found that. Mm. But there is one big factor. So let me ask you this question. Becky, Yeah. you've got a class yeah. of 30. I'm going to come into your class and I'm going to randomly take out 10 to 15 kids. Or you can choose any five kids you don't want. Your choice. Wait, so I can pick the kids you're going to take out of my class or you can? Yes, you can take out five. Or I'm going to take out 10 to 15. Which huh. option do you want? Uh, the five. All right. Then I'm going to ask <laughs> me too. Sign me up for that. You want to have a class of 20 kids who don't want to be there or 40 kids who do want to be there? 40 that do, hands down. Yeah, and this comes to the totally. essence here. Yep. Those five kids are incredibly time-consuming. Yeah. They take up a lot of your intellectual energy. They do disrupt the other rest of the kids in the class. Class size is often a proxy for those difficult mm. kids. For, te- for parents, class size is a proxy that if had less kids, my kid would get more individual attention. And for principals, class size is a proxy for funding because most of your funding models are based on staff-student ratios, which are related to class size. And so we've built this system where it looks like class is the class size is the obvious answer. Now, I hope you heard what I said. The research has shown that class size has had a positive but smaller effect. I would argue that if you had smaller classes, we should teach differently. There's an ethical problem here. If you have a brilliant teacher of a class of 30 and you give that now teacher 15, you've deprived 15 kids of great teaching. Mm. Certainly, the visible learning work is mainly based on class sizes of 25 to 30. That's what the dominant model is. And I am just stunned at the amount of success teachers have in those classrooms. We've worked out how to do it. And Andrew Schleicher has argued, and I'm pleased he said it, not me, that over the last 10 years, the countries that have invested the most in reducing class size are the ones that have gone most backwards. It's not the best use of class. Yeah, I I love to see that. That Russia average class size is eighteen, and they have some of the lower scores. And then you look at Japan and Korea, and their average class size is is thirty three, and they have some of the higher scores. So I think uh, that's really telling to look at that. And yeah, but you got to be careful there. No, no, let's be careful because I think you miss a really critical point when you make those comparisons. In your country, like mine, the biggest difference between when I went to school and now is that. Teachers are now responsible for a hang of a lot more than reading, writing, and arithmetic. Uh, when I went to school, I was known by my last name. The notion of the teacher understanding my home life was zero. The relationship between me and the teacher was irrelevant uh, in terms of how that teacher instructed. That's not true anymore. If you go into classes in some of those countries you mentioned, 
they're not so concerned about the social well-being of kids. I think that's a good thing that we are responsible. I think that's an extra responsibility. If you go to classes of 40 to 50, as in some of those countries, you can't deal with relationships. Hmm. We pay a price. And certainly as I look at PISA, my measurement argument is I have nothing wrong with those kinds of tests. They're just narrow excellence. I want to broaden them and I want to have a basket of goods. And actually, I've done the data. If I look at things like entrepreneurship, creativity, health, equity, democracy, well-being, et cetera, and I do the analysis for all those 80 to 100 countries in the PISA stakes, you get a totally different lead table. And that's why I say to politicians, in the term of your office, it should be a badge of courage that you never go to Shanghai, Finland, or Singapore. You should look around your own area for those schools where they're getting that more basket of goods notion, uh, positive effect on kids, and go there. And guys, not a lot of courage out there. Well, and that, that that totally goes kind of to your point that it, it's not all about the number on a standardized test. That actually one of the, one of the things that that you say is that a child's likelihood to succeed in life has more to do with how long they were in school than their actual yeah. success in school. Well, this is Hank Levin. He's a brilliant economist um, in your country of education. And uh, I, as a father, I was um, certainly driven by his work that showed that the best predictor of adult health, wealth, and happiness was not achievement at school. It was the number of years of schooling. And we've got to be very careful what that means. Is Are schools inviting places for kids to come to? It's not just raising the school leaving age. And unfortunately, some of our schools aren't very inviting for all of our kids. And if you've had your own kids, and I've certainly got my four boys and watching them go through schools, and they're so different in terms of what they want to do and their talents and all these things, uh, in some cases, the schools weren't inviting. And here I'm thinking, well, wait a moment, the best predictor of health, wealth, and happiness. I look at you know, my state here of Victoria in Australia, 97% of adults in prison in, in, in Victoria did not finish high school. The cost of them in society is huge. How do we make schools more inviting? And I think that's critical. And that doesn't mean that you necessarily have high test scores, even though I want high test scores. It does mean turning kids on to learning. It's being, why can't you be excellent at being a panel beater as you can be excellent at being a chemist or a historian? That's wow. what we should be doing in our schools. That's awesome. So who who are you looking to these days for educational inspiration? Like, are you reading anything or doing research on anything that you think we should be up on? I mean, outside of feedback, you already mentioned. Yeah, look, I... That's the luxury of my job is that I can go into different areas. In the last four or five years, I've been heavily invested in building a science of learning centre here at at Melbourne, along with colleagues in in Queensland, and just trying to reinvent the discipline of educational psychology, which is slipping, 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 unfortunately. And it's about, we've just finished a a pretty major synthesis like visible learning, which is on achievement. And now I've moved to looking at the learning strategies, how kids learn. I'm spending a lot of time trying to build a research uh, around rural and regional education. Um, Every mile you get from a downtown city here in Australia, uh, things look a little grimmer. But there's some stunning stuff happening in the rural. But unfortunately, there's hardly any researchers in that. So that's another one of my missions. But I've also, in the last um, four or five years, taken on a political uh, role here in Australia in that we have a system like yours where uh, the federal government owns not a school, all the states own the school. But the federal government owns this organisation called the Australian Institute for Teaching and School Leaders, and I'm the uh, government-appointed chair of that. And so I get to meet the ministers a lot. I get to meet the director generals. And so it's nice being in that middle space. It's fascinating. I'm learning a tremendous amount. I don't want to stop learning. So I'm continuing to do these things that that, that keep me challenged. 
and I'm thoroughly enjoying them. God, that's incredible. I bet you hear so many stories about education. Um, and I don't, I don't really get exposed to what's happening in Australia and New Zealand very often. Like, are there, I mean, you said you had the New Zealand story about the students that are owning their own data. Um, do you have more examples like that of, of amazing things that are happening in schools that you've seen recently? Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious what's the, some of the biggest differences between school down under, if you will, and what it's like here. Uh, it's, it's, it's not as great as you think it is. Like certainly in New Zealand, they, they don't have a kind of no child left behind accountability mantra. Australia does a lot more, and in, in many cases, like I do have the luxury now, particularly since visible learning, of touring a lot around the world and many, many different places, and, and I see excellence everywhere. And so, yeah, there are structural differences, but when you close the door or you're a principal and you close the door, fundamentally your job isn't that much different. Like I'm fascinated working with some of the, the French people at the moment where they have no concept of a principal. That, does not kind of, that notion doesn't exist in the school, and that to me is intriguing. Um, but, but in your country, in my country, um, as is the case, if you came out and visited a school here, you'd, you'd know exactly what was going on. And I certainly know from working in your country that there are many schools that are using these visible learning notions and there's some stunning successes out there. And, and the point I'm making, it can be done everywhere. Yeah, we can wax lyrical about the structural differences, the political differences, but probably don't excite your listeners as much as what happens in classrooms and schools. They aren't that much different. I, I just picture a lot of ding, like dingoes running around. Are there dingoes there? Oh my God. <laughs> uh, yeah, and there's kangaroos and sharks and snakes. And oh, don't forget the killer sheep. There we go. I love it. <laughs> so I, I've had a question that I've, I've needed to ask, and I, I don't know. I know you'll know how to answer it because you are just so immersed in the research. And so we had uh, Dr. Zhou, young Zhou on the, the podcast, and he grew up in China and talked about how uh, at the time um, to get into college, you only needed to test high in one area. And so he scored super low on the math area. So my question is, what is the research on strength-based education systems, um, systems that just let kids double down on what they're good at? Um, so you say, hey, after eighth grade, I'm, I decided I'm done with math and I just want to double down on reading and writing. Is there some research on strength-based systems as opposed to deficit models? Yeah, like Yang Zhou, stunning speaker, good friend, um, heard the story many times. So let me tell you a different story. Um, I was, as <laughs> okay. I was growing up and going through high school, I was okay at mathematics. Okay. And if I'd been given the option around the age eighth grade of dropping it, I probably would have, but we weren't allowed to. And it was only in my last year of high school, I had this teacher, Mr. Tomlinson, stunning beyond. And he had this mission that everyone shared his passion in mathematics. He had this mission that every one of us succeed. And I remember at the start of the year, he all made us at this test, which was the end of the year test. And we, oh my gosh, we so failed at zero, five, 10%. And we were devastated. And he stood up in front of the class. He said, that was the end of the test, end of the year test. My job is to get you all to pass it. And he took on that obligation. And he saw things in us we didn't see in ourselves. So you've got to be careful here. If you let kids choose what they want to do, sometimes they choose what they're already good at. And it's kind of like a lot of that um, stuff that came out, that sort of nonsense stuff about visual and kinesthetic learners and that we should allow those kids to learn in their mode. Well, we're actually depriving them dramatically because this world values verbal and miracle reasoning. And someone like Yong Zhao, 
Yeah, he could perhaps give up mathematics and do not so good at it, but his skill in the verbal side is stunning. And so, yeah, he could. But what about those other kids who probably don't have a major strength? I think our job in schools, like the fundamental reason that we teach things in schools is we make kids go to school to learn that which they didn't know. And sometimes exposing them to things. Like, again, I give my maths example. Um, I remember certainly in my university days, it was compulsory that we had to do a language. And so I learned French and I was hopeless at it. Fortunately, in the second year, the university changed the rules and decided statistics was a language. And so I was able to do that and it opened another things for me. And so closing off too quickly can be as much as a problem as strength-based. Now, you polarized it as strength deficit. I'm not a fan of deficit thinking at all. And so I'm not advocating for that. I'm saying that sometimes you have to bring the kid to the task for them to appreciate what they can do rather than let them necessarily choose they don't want to do that. Like in my few years as a teacher, I was a music teacher. I'd be horrified if I only got the kids who love music. My job was to turn the other kids on. That is an amazing answer. Mm. And to think about you stopping math in eighth grade when you, uh, your sample size for your studies are a quarter billion. I can't picture someone who's better at math today. So that's exactly the answer I kind of was hoping to hear. Thanks, thanks to Mr. Tomlinson. Yeah, that's <laughs> So cool. I, Dr. Hattie, I really, I, I don't, I don't want to let you go yet, but I know we've had you for like 45 minutes and I don't, I don't want to be disrespectful of your time. If I could maybe ask like a last question, your, your 10 mind frames book, um, I, I just found really incredibly impactful. And I wonder, uh, you know, since it just came out in January, I don't think a lot of our listeners have read it yet. Could you maybe just tell one story or one big takeaway that, that our listeners could benefit from, from that 10 mind frame book? Like what's, you know, one of the most important mind frames or, you know, how it's structured or anything like that that you want to share with us would be amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah the, the reason for writing the book is that when the first visible learning book came out and that sort of league table list came, um, which was a summary for me, but it took on a life of its own. And um, I wanted to get attention back to the story underlying that league table rather than the league table. And it's that notion we've talked about, about how teachers think. And, um, I was talking to my good friend Carol Dweck a few years ago, and she was saying, you know, she gets all these criticisms about her growth fixed mindset, et cetera. And she said, you don't get as much criticism about what you're doing. And I'm, well, it's actually not true. I do get a lot. I said, Carol, I've got 10 mind frames. You've only got one. But those 10 are the same one said 10 times. Mm. And the, the real one is, is number one. Huh. It's that notion that when you walk into a classroom, your job is to understand your impact. Your notion of building the evaluative capacity of our teachers and our principals. That's what it all comes back to. The things like I cause learning, I see assessment as feedback to me, um, I talk about learning, not teaching, are all sort of modifications of that number one. So if your list listeners want to read the book, read that chapter, and then the other nine are repeats. Now, that's not hopefully how we've written it, but that's the core argument. And it's kind of like <laughs> when Klaus Zara and I were working on this. In fact, we wrote the book in German first, and it was published about two years ago. And it was really a fascinating experiment for us because we were able to release a book and get feeder and readers' reaction. And then we rewrote it and we fixed up the things there where the reader said they didn't understand that. So it's been a luxury to, to do it in this way. And that notion of making sure the other nine frames have a story to tell, but there's a unity there and it's all around that one. I am 
an evaluator of my impact. Interesting. So, and then I'm, I'm going to ask you another one just because I, I'm being selfish now. Um, so if When else are we going to get a talk to John Hattie? Yeah, exactly. Let's just keep him on until he runs away. <laughs> we'll release you eventually. Um, it's just, it's so fascinating hearing your your take on these things. Um, and I, I, I watch your videos online too. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always just really, it, it brings so much more clarity sometimes uh, hearing you talk about things than reading it. But if you could advise our listeners um, to like stop doing one thing in their classes that you've seen as either detrimental or a waste of energy, because I, I think part of, you know, all these initiatives and things is like we hold on to them so tight that we never want to let them go. And then sometimes we just end up wasting a lot of our energy on those things like zero effect size or smaller or even negative. Um, so what would be one thing that you would advise people to maybe let go of at this point? Stop talking and start listening. It's beautiful in its simplicity. Absolutely. All right. You're amazing. Um, I, I really, Dr. Hetty, I cannot thank you enough for your time. This has been incredible. I'm so glad we finally got to connect. Have you seen the movie Crocodile Dundee? Of course. Oh my God. He's doing it. Is there, <laughs> I, I just, I said I had to, would you mind just saying that's not a knife? This is a knife. That's not a knife. This is a knife. Oh, you are amazing. Uh, I'm not quite up to Mick Mundy, though. <laughs> you have to be part of the advocacy. There's a whole oh, mythology now created from the um, uh, Super Bowl last year that we're going to create a new one. for the new Crocodile Dundee, and why don't we star in it together? This is an effect. That's not an effect. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I would... Yeah, but I totally want to be in the subway at the end. Like he says, (laughs) he loves you. Like, oh my gosh, that's amazing! I can't believe, Doctor Hattie, you're so great. Thanks, guys. We've been sitting on this interview for a couple of months, actually, and I've been so anxious to get it out to our listeners. I'm, I'm really glad it's finally out there. But Ben, after all this time, I still cannot believe you really got John Hattie to quote Crocodile Dundee. Well, it's like Michael Scott said, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So I just had to model risk-taking for our listeners, you know? Just went for it. I love it. I could never do that. You're like my hero. So I loved his riff at the end, too. That's not an effect. That's an effect. Such nerd humor. Did you hear that? It was kind of buried by my laughter. I loved it. But anyways, for lots of reasons, including that one, I was so impressed. And I've listened to this interview back like five times just to hear more from him. And it makes me smile every time, mostly because of the accent, obviously. But... Really, it's because he's so full of optimism and joy when it comes to this work. I love that. And in all seriousness, I really love when he says my name back to me when we talk like, oh, that's a good question, Becky. Like, I want to do that more for people. Doesn't that make you feel good? Yeah, it definitely does. Yeah. Uh, I was really challenged by his idea of formative assessment. And assessment isn't a bad word, but so often, I think in education, we think of it in a bad way. And really, I loved how he kind of frames that assessment is really just listening and respecting where your students are at. And so um, I'm just challenged to listen more through assessing in every situation I'm in. That's awesome. Uh, I also really liked his the the way he talked about the importance of that needs assessment, like how we're really awesome at interventions, but the reasons that we put those into place, like the diagnosis, is maybe where we're not spending enough time. Um, I think what I really took away over and over from what he said is that there are so many ways to do this well, to teach well, to learn well, and that we should stop looking for just the one way to make that happen, but instead just embrace the constellation of practices that characterize our instruction and focus more on evaluating and defining what impact we want to have based on like discussions of learning progressions or you know you and I talking about what a year's worth of growth looks like for our students and how we follow that diagnosis, intervention, implementation, evaluation cycle. 
I also loved his questions of student and teachers. Like I said before at the beginning, like your um, show me the values thing. What does it mean to be a learner in this classroom? And do those responses differ? Like I, I thought that would be a really cool activity to do with your students. Um, I was also struck by his discussions around feedback. We, we've often talked about feedback being kind of a guilt-inducing endeavor for teachers. But really to hear Dr. Haiti talk about it's not the amount of feedback that's given, but it's about how it's received. And then about where students go next with it and if they can identify where to go next uh, and also how the teacher receives where to go next. I think we'll have to wait to interview him again after his next book if he's up for it um, to really do justice to that conversation. But in the meantime, I'm, I'm challenged by that and I want to do it more. Yeah, 100%. I do too. Uh, I want to know where we go next as well. And I, I'm pretty sure that John Hattie has a tattoo on his muscular, chiseled right bicep and it says, Know Thy Impact. And Becky and I want to know the impact of this show. So can you reach out to us and tell us how we can make it better for you? There are a thousand ways you can get a hold of us. You can follow us on Twitter or email us. But how can we make this better for you? Now go and have a great generic time of day.